The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show. Today, the raps, Scott Mendelson and I embark on a brand new seven-part retrospective series covering the career of Tim Burton, the Tim Burton's big retrospective, Tim Burton. So welcome back again, Scott Mendelson. Uh, I have missed this place. <laughs> the summer to fall, here again with the promised Tim Burton retrospective scott this first episode is going to focus on the early portion of burton's career uh starting with many short films of his some really really short films and including a tv production of hansel and gretel that was made for the disney channel and 1984's frankenweenie which when doing retrospectives and stuff uh which like 10 years ago this year i did my first four uh, Mendelssohn's memos. Uh, you'd always mention, you know, most people would start at Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but Brandon, no. <laughs> Others might start at Frankenweedy, but Brandon, no. He goes and plucks obscure things nobody probably cares about, but I want to be complete. As complete this is as the I can. prequel origin story episode. <laughs> yes, this is. It very- will end with Burton looking off and thinking, but what if Pee Wee had an adventure that was big? <laughs> Oh, mm, how do you find that bike? Uh, everybody wants to know. So uh, we, we we dabbled on this, Scott, at the end of summer of 82 at 40. Um, but why Tim Burton? What What's up with Tim Burton? Um, inadvertently, uh, this month, we should be dropping these in November, uh, beginning this series. Uh, he's got Wednesday, the... Adam's Family miniseries on Netflix dropping. That wasn't a tie-in. I just wanted to do Tim Burton, but it inadvertently has worked. Uh, Because for me, and I believe for you, Scott, he was one of our first favorite directors that we... Yes. Uh, He was one of the first people that I considered to be a favorite director. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I... I knew what a you know I I knew what a director was. I knew Spielberg. I knew Lucas. I knew I had a vague you know knowledge of who Ron Howard was. He was the guy that was directing Willow that wasn't George Lucas, because um, you know if you recall that was sold as sort of you know from the men that made Star Wars, but not really. Um, so was Radio Land Murders and Howard the Duck, but yeah, <laughs> that was later. But yes, well no, Radio you know, Howard the Duck was about the same time. Yeah. But I. You know, I, I grew up adoring Batman, and eventually Batman Returns, and I liked it. I liked Edward Scissorhands. Um, oddly enough, I grew up absolutely loving Tim Burton, despite not being a huge fan of Scissorhands or Nightmare Before Christmas. And we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Um, but I think in retrospect for an entire generation, give or take people my age, he was sort of film school in a box in that he had such a distinct visual audio style and such a distinct set of themes in terms of his films and his protagonists and, and the arcs that you could, you know, you were, you were, you could take almost everything that you think of as a quote unquote film school education in terms of the production value and the, the storytelling and say, Oh, well, you know, and apply it to Tim Burton, whose films were so distinctive that like oh okay that's you know he likes making movies about outcasts that either want to fit in or don't want to fit in you know the uh danny elfman usually does the scores and they're either you know grandiose bum, 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 or they're sort of like playful and, and sometimes they're both um 
and you know the art design where you have these these ridiculously larger than life surreal sets where it's like the forests are coming alive but not really where you know it's a real city but it looked like a hellscape and this was well before i mean he i don't want to say he stood alone because you know blade runner obviously comes to mind and other people you know before i was born and what have you but the 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 filmography of tim burton at least for the 80s and 90s was pretty unique unto itself Mm -hmm. and without spoiling the punchline i think one reason why you know it's become hip and or cool to say tim burton isn't cool anymore hey it's been 34 years since batman he's not a young man anymore he's in his i think he's in his 50s but is that the kind of films that he made mainstream effects and production value driven spectacles that maybe don't make entirely perfect sense in terms of a story but wow it's a movie that's now sort of the stock and trade of the hollywood blockbuster so you add two generations of film filmmakers and to a certain extent studio execs that very slowly approximated the Tim Burton templates where what used to be unique under, you know, Tim is now very mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also, I mean, used to, I mean, became like, a, he didn't do anything to change. Like he's changing, trying new things, but like his stylistic thing, his vision was what we all latched to just became expected at some point. Yes. And, and I, that's not his fault. Um, basically, he became a guy. He always was, to me, that you kind of look back, but it, people started going, oh, well, he's just taking this and making it Tim Burton something something. He always was that way. Your Edward Scissorhands are the rare, they're, they're the exception because his, we'll get into it, but Pee Wee's Big Adventure is an adaptation of Paul Rubin's stage play. Batman's an adaptation of a comic book. What? Uh, Ed Wood is an adaptation, it's a biopic off a guy's life. Planet of the Apes, Sleepy Hollow, um, Mars Attack. These are all, they were all, the, all the stuff in the the prime era were adaptations with his own sort of look to them. And yes. uh, and and I want to argue, and I hope this pro- this this retrospective proves He's still batting at a high average. He's still doing quite well, even if interest, he's not the hot thing on the block anymore. He's, you know, going out and making solid records still. He has some good songs and stuff. They're just not the, what the kids are listening to anymore. That's, <laughs> you know, that's, And also, and, you know, I don't want to skip too far ahead to the end, but even in the last, you know, generally speaking, people talk about, you know, you know, sort of a peak at maybe Sleepy Hollow and then... But what also happened is people, you know, when you only show up to Alice in Wonderland and Planet of the Apes and Dark Shadows Mm -hmm. and Dumbo, which I don't hate Dumbo, but we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, But you don't show up to Big Eyes, Sweeney Todd, Big Fish, Frank and Weenie, the the, the remake, Mm -hmm. then you're not seeing the good Burton stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's a problem with with the culture in general. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. one huge reason up to a point why people still associated Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart with Twilight, you know, a decade after the fact. Because right. The art house slash indie films that they were making weren't being seen by by mass audiences. Um, and these were films that were not intended to be seen by mass audiences. Not like there's any world in which the kids were going to race out and see, you know, David Cronenberg's Cronenberg's uh, Cosmopolis or Kirsten Stewart's, you know, Camp X in the first run theater. Good That's time. Good time way. was on Amazon for quite some time. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, that but I, and so was the Lost City of Z. Two of his best performances yeah, post Twilight. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, but they obviously they made like 10 bucks in theaters and that's fine. That's the way of the world. And they're not Um, buzzy to tweet about. Yeah, exactly. But, and, you know, for me, I first noticed Nicolas Cage, where he would make films like uh, Adaptation and Bad Lieutenant, Port of St. Charles, St. Help, Help. Port uh, Port of Call. New Orleans, call, or yes. New Orleans or something like that? Yes, that one. <laughs> Which are, or Lord of War, that are good, or if they're, you know, subjective opinions, are interesting and challenging pictures. But when you only, when the world only pays attention to Ghost Rider and National Treasure and Next, 
then you get people like Sean Penn saying, oh, he's not an actor anymore. He's just a performer. Well, you remember we were speaking of that Lord of War uh, Lionsgate was thought that was going to be one of their Oscar pictures that year. Um, it's a terrific movie. It is a really good. I mean, it's one of my they favorite. Released it in the middle Cage of movies. summer, so I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, in terms of Oscars, I mean, whatever. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, I think as the Hollywood makes a version of X Y Z and sort of turns this IP into an action slash fantasy mm-hmm. slash four quadrant whatever, as that became kind of Hollywood stock and trade. And yes, Tim Burton, you know, ironically, kind of helped us get going again with Alice in Wonderland in 2010. Then the you know the stereotypical Tim Burton film, you know, Hollywood makes a version of this IP, you know, became became even more frowned upon, understandably, mm-hmm. and thus Burton's films became more frowned upon as they were no longer an exception to the rule, but part of the problem. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was definitely around the Alice time, I would say. That's and that was a hype movie. I think people were really looking forward to that one. Oh yeah, I mean, it made a it opened with a hundred and sixteen million dollars in March of twenty ten. That was the, I believe it was the se- the biggest opening weekend ever for an original title at that point for a non sequel at that point in time. And it legged out to three hundred and thirty four million world domestic. Did a billion worldwide. I think it was like the sixth movie to make a billion after yeah back when they all didn't make billions yeah and that was that was sort of the start of where you know films in 3d just for the hell of it because you could overcharge and overseas ticket sales yada 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 Mm -hmm. and yes you could argue that the film was successful partially because it was the first big post avatar 3d picture but also it was a big 200 million dollar family friendly adventure fantasy from tim burton where you know it had come out in 2010 so you had the generation of people like us that had grown up on nightmare for christmas batman uh sleepy hollow etc cetera, etc cetera, were now old enough to take their kids to the latest tim burton adventure right uh and you had you know johnny depp and, and hathaway when they were both you know to a certain extent butts and seats draws especially sure. johnny depp that was sort of the, the tail end of where he could actually open a movie that wasn't parts of the caribbean yeah true um true yeah there's a yeah there, and he'll have a lot of speaking of johnny depp he'll have a lot of players that show up regularly through this um depp being like the main one but there's helena bottom carter who will show up a lot went on a writer a few times uh and many many others but um yeah he he's a guy who got i think he got you know we're talking about like he got to do all of what he wanted right away kind of I think to a certain extent, yeah, yeah. I mean, Batman hit so hard so quickly at such a young age that he was able to do is you know to me the you know the prototypical one for them, one for me is going from Batman to mm-hmm. Edward Scissorhands, right? Mm-hmm. And as a sign of someone being a genuine marquee director to a certain extent, even Edward Scissorhands was a hit. Mm-hmm. You know that film made fifty five domestic in late nineteen ninety. Yeah, um, and uh, to, yeah, today it'd be like. You wouldn't get Edward Scissorhands. It'd be no, like, well, I can't what, imagine what Star Wars project we're going to put him on. <laughs> you know, with a hit like Batman, and it's well, and it's, that's it's all due respect. That's what Wednesday is. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's good. I like the people involved, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to say I'm thrilled that this is what he's he's doing right now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, know. I mean, there's a, <laughs> I mean, Barry Sonnefeld kind of became the like not Tim Burton, Tim Burton, and he made a yeah. he made an Adams Family movies and. Uh, Men in Black, which were reminiscent of like styling and stuff, and I think Tim Burton, to an extent, Wednesday may be making for lost time because he was involved in that Adams Family project for a little bit. Uh, True. Um, so maybe that's just going to making good on something. Whatever. I'm not. You know, I'm 42 years old. He's probably isn't as you know is. Is what is he fifty five, sixty? I know he's older than I am, obviously. Yeah. Well, let's see. He was twenty nine and. God, he might be close to fifty-five. Yeah. Oh no, he's he's just wait. No, sixty-five. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on a second, because I know he was like twenty-nine when Batman came out. He was like yeah, twenty-nine or thirty. He's sixty-four. Oh my god. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. All the more. I mean, he's sixty-four. You know, again, it's sort of like everyone that's that's clamoring for the return of the Eddie Murphy that existed from nineteen eighty-two to nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. Um, even though we watched that character be killed off than any professor, damn it. Right. <laughs> that was the whole point of that movie. Uh. He was saying, I don't want to be this guy anymore. 
But now that if that's all I can get made, I'll throw the quarter in the jukebox. I'll Pretty play much. I'll play I mean, and that's and that's how I've always felt. I know everyone's you know debating on Twitter right now, and this is seven weeks ago, haha, about what it means that Hugh Jackman's going to play Wolverine again, and I, it is depressing. And I do think it's influenced by the fact that movies like, you know, The Front Runner don't make money. You know, movies like Prisoners, which was a hit nine years ago, would probably not get made today. Yeah. Um, well, I and- mean, since that movie hasn't been made and is only, I, I would say, if it wasn't a Disney-owned property now, I would have had hope that maybe the 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 idea behind this would be to poke fun at the modern day legacy sequel and Spider-Man Far From Home or No Way Homes by putting him in it and doing something to have some sort of, I don't know, uh, social commentary if, on all that If they that pull stuff. a weekend at Bernie's, then I ret- retract all my objections. Yeah. Um, and that being said, I mean, I, I share that you know concern. I mean, again, I'm 42 mm-hmm. years old, who cares? But I also th- I would like to think that Disney understands that if you want to make money from a Deadpool movie, you don't not make it a Deadpool movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, whatever that may be. Um, they backed up the truck into Hugh Jackman's yard. We know that. <laughs> and hey, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We end up with a greatest showman sequel out of it. Right. Well, and, you know, what's funny is like they had to make a video about them joking around, but like, well, how is he alive? Well, it do- I'm like, who fuck? Who cares? Well, that, and that's that. Nerds. Yeah. Who cares? I, I did enjoy the video this morning where they're basically saying, here, they answered all your questions. <laughs> and they just don't answer anything. Yeah. Um, so, but so. whatever. I mean, it is what it is. It's 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 an industry wide problem that people prefer marquee characters to actual actors and actresses. Right. And it's not Hugh Jackman's fault. I actually think he's the closest thing we've had to a new movie star in the last of that nature in the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. You know, and- his career going from nobody to Wolverine to asses and seats draw is what Hollywood has spent the last 15 years chasing. And he's really him. only done Wolverine, right? Like he's yeah. not in any other franchise. No, no. I mean, he's, he's done films that you could consider quote unquote. Well, no, I mean, play Ms. Rob isn't a Deadpool. I mean, it may have played like one because it's a popular show, but it only costs 60 to make. Mm-hmm. But no, he's, he's had a long, solid run. Yeah. And I don't begrudge him if he wants to do something fun and get paid a lot of money to do it. But, you know, I still don't have to not be kind of depressed about what it means for the industry as a whole. Yeah. Um, the same way that, you know, I ended up not hating Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I hate that that movie had to exist. Yeah. <sighs> new things well this is depressing so far what a start oh <laughs> deadpool stuff uh tim burton who is not directing deadpool let's let's take a look at these early things tim burton was a california born guy uh so we'll take a look at some of the things and see some of the themes maybe pop up early on that we can what makes him tick we're going in the mind of the murderer here to find the thing this is this is this is Buster Rhymes going into the Myers house on Halloween and figuring figuring things out. All right, so his first short that he made, not as a kid or whatever, as a thirteen year old, nineteen seventy one, The Island of Doctor Agor, um, not available. We cannot watch it. So we will start with prehistoric caveman from the same year which uh, a copy we have has no audio it probably didn't back then it was probably a little eight millimeter or something they shot it's a stop motion film uh using action figures uh there 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 was one point a hand accidentally appeared in one like which away uh it's like a lot of wrestling matches stuff um which is something i'll come back later in this episode um it's by like some water, like a mud puddle or something like that. Uh, I think there's like a, he tries to make like a mudslide storm happen in it. I I used to make stuff like this with my camcorder back yeah. when I was. Yeah, um, that's a kid. that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, I take my action figures and I once I figured the stop record stop or pause record pause record yeah. pause record pause record. I'd make ridiculous things. Um, I think I made it better than Tim Burton did on this thing, but you know what? He had less resources. So. <laughs> He's more impressive than me. 
But uh, yeah, uh, what did you think of this little thing, Scott? Well, I, I was about to say the exact same things that remind me of the kind of thing you'd make as a kid with your action figures, mm-hmm. with your, you know, your mom or and or dad's camcorder. <laughs> or yep. your big bulky video camera with a VHS tape in there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, obviously, we're not going to be critiquing most of these. No, it's just kind of shorts. No, um, <laughs> it sucks. That man has no future in Hollywood. Um, Spielberg's like, I made something better than that when I was six. I want my bandwidth back. <laughs> but no, I did. I agree with you. It does feel like something that, you know, it, it, the thing that you do as a kid when you just want to make your action figure dramas look a bit more dramatic. I guess this is what kids who are into film do at a certain points, you know, like um, stuff like that. So, yeah, that's prehistoric caveman. You can find you can find that a lot of these on YouTube if you're curious. Just type Tim Burton prehistoric caveman; it should come up. Um, our next one is also from 1971. Uh, Houdini: The Untold Story. It's a black and white. Uh, this looks like he's trying to film himself tying himself to train tracks and getting run over, and then he saves some girl. And then there's a color sequence in a bed, but I think it's from another film we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but yeah, Houdini, the untold story. It, he he's seen in it, uh, doing the classic train track bit from like Dudley Do Right. Um, short, not much to go on here. Scott, it's black and white. It's fine. <laughs> it's just messing around. Uh, yeah. So next is Tim's dreams, which this is looks like the footage that was at the end of. Um, yeah, it was, I was very confused when I first watched these. I was too. I was like, like oh. okay, whatever. I'm just going to take this as it is. I don't know. I can't confirm whether we're watching complete versions or just leaked footage from some of this stuff that, that is on the internet that I didn't put there, but I'm allowed to watch it. So, Thanks, YouTube. Yes. Uh, looks like it, it picks up where Houdini <laughs> left off. So this one, it's uh, he gets... Dreaming in a bed, and then he gets attacked by a beanbag chair while he's reading, which is another instance of him attempting some stop motion stuff because the beanbag yes. chair moves. Um, yeah, and it's it's certainly an early example of him playing around with you know monster movie tropes and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and his affinity for stop motion, which yes. would never go away. Um, it was interesting you mentioned wrestling because you know when you think of Burton as whatever, I mean you, you don't think of him as a, a, a wrestling fan, but that's there's mm-hmm. certainly some stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's never really come back on that in his big maybe touches in big fish, but not this type of wrestling in there. Yeah, yeah. Um because this is very uh he seems to like when we get to a later one, there he seems to have an affinity for a luchador stuff, but uh, the next short is 1997 from 1974. That is not available. We can't watch it. Send it to us. We'll we'll watch it and talk about it. But um, if you're listening, Tim, if you're listening, I know you might be. Helena, if you got some things of his still laying around your house, send it. We'll watch them. <laughs> um, these old films. These old films. Not your Did personal. Send us the deleted scenes from Batman. I always wanted to see them. Oh yeah, I know they're on the playing cards. Not, not the, not the storyboard bullshit they gave us on the thing. But if you could, all right. So uh, after that, we have King and Octopus from 1979. He did this while this is one uh, first one at the California Institute of the Arts. So his first early years in college, only a clip exists of it. And it looks like it's it's a very storyboard like animation, hand drawn. Uh, octopus like in a throne with a crown on throws a chicken leg at a guy in a grate. Uh, he does, and he takes a bite of it, and that's that's really it. Thrilling stuff, let me tell you. I was I was very invested in it. I. It was so good. I watched it twice. Yeah. Might, that's actually I'm true because it's I'm like 30 seconds long it is 30 <laughs> seconds so we got a good rundown of this he also did a doctor of doom at this time here we go we have a little like slasher fake out opening on this one and tim plays a guy that looks like one of his drawings claymation characters that would come along yeah so, uh there oh. and there's like a taco dinner party uh, and uh, the guy says, I'm going to destroy you all. 
there's a part where he walks into a mountain lair that's kind of impressive for what we got here. Uh, a monster's created. It's like an elephant nose, Greedo-looking thing. And there's a part. A uh, cameraman shows up in a mirror reflection. Low, low rent stuff. I love it. And there's a fight scene with a lot of wrestling in it. Scott. Uh, this feels to me like the first Tim Burton movie. It does. It's yeah. 11. It's 11 minutes long. It is obviously playing on horror and sci-fi tropes. Mm-hmm. Weird trivia. I noticed just from looking at the credits, Tim Burton is dubbed by Brad Bird. Oh, okay. So obviously they were together at Disney at this mm-hmm. point in time. Um, and yeah, you know, as as would become somewhat of a theme, the protagonist. Oh, they weren't at looks, Disney yet. They weren't at Disney. Oh, yet. I apologize. They were not at Disney yet. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but then maybe it's a different bad bird. I don't know. That's but it's like, like well, wait, what? Anyway, gotcha. um, like a lot of Tim Burton films to come, you have a protagonist that looks like Tim Burton or looks like a, as you said, a, a piece of art created by Tim Burton to right. vaguely resemble himself. And this, of course, of course, you know, it's him acting and playing himself. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's an 11 minute short you know, dime store budget, yada, yada, yada. But it to me is a fascinating bit of, okay, this is where it starts. This is where it really starts. This is the Tim I know. <laughs> this is Tim Burton's wide awake. Hasn't, hasn't gotten any better than this. since He should have <laughs> stopped, um, started putting things in color. But yeah, um, I want to figure out this Brad Bird thing so people aren't like, what is it? Is it Brad Bird? Is it the Brad Bird? Because, yeah, I would hate to leave people hanging on that like a normal podcast does. And they're like, wait, they they got away from the Brad Bird thing. I was really excited. So he dubbed his voice. You're saying. um, Unless I misread the credits. It is the Brad Bird. Holy crap a moly. But, you know, Southern California in college there, did they go to the same college? Is that why? Uh, I do not know. That might have been what happened there because there's another uh, notable figure that um, we'll come across here real quickly. Um, Not a big name like Brad Bird, but oh, yeah, California Institute of Arts, where he uh, met John Lasseter um, there. So he must have met Tim Burton while he was at California. They went to the same college. There's our answer. All right. Believe me. But yeah, the the uh, wow. Okay, uh, all right. <laughs> so, uh, Stalk of the Celery Monster uh, from 1979. Uh, this is another storyboard like animation of a mad scientist kind of thing. Woman strapped to a table. There's some audio that comes in and goes out. Uh, there's like very confusing. <laughs> there's an elephant creature. Some some of this is in color. And the joke of the end of this is that it's just a dentist office. Yeah. It's kind of set up to be like a Frankenstein's monster type scenario. If it's alive type thing, and it ends up just being a dead star. And that's kind of a funny joke. Yeah, um, it's it's um, it's an example of, of Burton not necessarily ending on the most macabre note possible. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, there was a... I'll note it down when we get to Luau. Uh, so this... Jo- this movie, this short film, landed him a job at Disney in the animation department. This is what they liked, they saw. Uh, and he became a concept artist in his time at Disney for The Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron, which none of his work wound up in any of those movies. He was like this... I We're going to get to some Disney stuff, his Disney run here at the end of this episode. He was kind of a failure there. Um, yeah. big time, like legendary. So we'll get there. But the next film we have is Luau, where he works with Jerry Reese. Um, Jerry Reese, uh, who he collaborates a couple times with these shorts with or whatever. This guy works, still working at Disney. Um, big in the anime art department, animation department, but he's done such things like, uh, Batman, the mask of the phantasm, uh, Brave Little Toaster, um, Monsters, Inc., Wreck-It Ralph, Inside Out. Like, yeah, you name a Pixar or Disney movie that has been huge, and he's probably worked on it. Little Mermaid, like, 
character animators, Roger Rabbit. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not going to read his entire IMDb page, but it's long. He had a good collaborator here. So this Luau, um, there's a lot. Okay, so this is like a beach party movie that's, I think, trying to be a parody of beach party movies. It's got a lot of Burton stuff in here. Um, I want to point out that there's everybody thinks of Tim Burton as just this goth guy, right? But he has he has this almost Lynchian fascination with suburbia and like the beach bunny type thing and like yeah 60s suburbia stuff like that because and his is a lot of like gothic stuff meets that like the edward scissorhands is probably the biggest example of what he brings together but outside of his gothicness he really has an affinity to that stuff and that's why i think he works so well with paul rubens later on on Wee's big adventure because tim has that interest and an eye for that stuff to do well but everybody always thinks of him as super goth but i think that's why big eyes is so good too um when we get to that later but he's got this there's a bright side to him too and he actually i think he actually likes and has like a nostalgia for that kind of stuff even though he likes to twist it and throw it on its head it's it's part of his style i agree i mean it's 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 and i think some of that comes in terms of and again, I don't want to armchair analyze here, but I mean, films like Edward Scissorhands specifically seemed to, you know, what he wanted but could not have in terms of the stereotypical suburban childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying he had a broken home or anything like that. For all I, as far as I know, he had a relatively normal upbringing. But and his dad was a uh, minor league baseball player. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was um, at the time. He was. I think he was owning. He was like. <laughs> He was some operations type guy by that time, and his mother owned some sort of business. But he seemed to have a relatively um, nice childhood. But he certainly, you know, he always seemed to, at least from what I remember my reading about him, and you know, it was his Burton on Burton book back in the late nineties, that there was a certain curiosity, which may or may not have been related to you know, coveting mm-hmm. of these stereotypical, you know popular kid that does well in suburbia type existence mm-hmm. uh, i mean you know he's even admitted that edward says the end of edward scissorhands is him basically blowing off steam yeah and it's very clear that's one of the issues you know it's, it's whatever but it's we'll get you know, to it in a couple of weeks yeah we'll get to it in a couple of weeks but that certainly is sort of a revenge of the nerd type situation mm-hmm. um so that you know, even though I, I the, the the three you know it's about what about forty five forty minutes long, give or take. Yeah, it's long. Uh, <laughs> it didn't do much for me as um, entertainment, partially because I'm not as well versed enough in Disney history to oh I know that one I know that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting in terms of something completely out of what you think would be Burton's comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I thought the the opening title sequence in this felt like it was something out of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh, there's the little jokes like "Take a look at those buns," and then it pans over and it's actual buns. Uh, there's stop motion with live action here, uh, which would be something we we constantly see with him. And there's subtle dick jokes and references to the size of a hot dog. Right. Uh, there is uh, a surfing match with rear projection. Um, and, uh, there's like this guy, this sorcerer guy with a, it's like a head on a table looking for a body. Uh, there's a guy named IQ that clearly is animal house inspired in this that they have. Um, and there's a big fight scene at the end with lots of gags in it too. So more wrestling type pandemonium stuff going on, but yeah, it's, uh, ha. Ah. It's a fascinating one-time watch. If you're yeah, it's it's a, it's a curiosity. Burton. Yeah, this is the first time you got to make something like cohesive, start to finish. Little link to it, more characters. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, it it, it was kind of chore-ish, but it had rewards here and there. If you're a fan of Tim Burton, I would say for Luau. Um, now we get to the probably the best. Thing of the early these early shorts is Vincent from 1982. Um, this is a stop motion full on thing. Um, Vincent Price narrates this, uh, and 
Yeah, this is what you stereotypically think of as an early Burton film. A playful gothic kids poem with gothic stop motion animation. Um, this is, yeah, it looks like it fits with Corpse Bride. Real easy. Um, uh, it's kind of, you know, especially in terms of when and how it was made in terms of resources. It's pretty great. <laughs> it's remarkably efficient. Yeah. It's a six minute short that you know, there's not an ounce of fat on it. And it does, it, it works. It's the kind of thing that you would see in front of a movie. Like in, Tex in 1982. Yeah. It, it ran with Tex, a movie we talked on summer of 82 at 40. So we say Tex, be like, I know that movie. I've seen that movie. <laughs> um. And yeah, it's it's. I liked it. You know, I I think I had seen it. There was a special edition DVD in the night before Christmas that mm-hmm. had a handful of these short. This films is on there. On. Yep. And I remember because this is stuff that I would only read about previously, and you know, Starlog or Entertainment Weekly or Premiere mm-hmm. or whatever, and along with the books, the you know, the Burton on Burton material. But you know, I I it's very, it feels very complete, mm-hmm. you know, especially for in that early stage of his career, right. Uh, and you know you listen and so early and stuff and hear Vincent Price voice and you're you're almost want to be like wow that guy sounds just like Vincent Price <laughs> it is Vincent Price uh, which Vincent Price is really proud of this one this is one of his career highlights he's he's noted was his this short um, but yeah um, this yeah so yeah Vincent's yeah this is this is the I don't have to look very hard to recognize it's Tim Burton early Tim Burton yeah. thing. Um, this one's pretty, yeah, pretty it's, it's, it's enjoyable. I think still like to say you'll find it easily online anywhere you want to. Uh, and then we follow up here. Uh, one of our big top two things from this week is Hansel and Gretel from 1983, which aired on the Disney channel as a special one time at 10 30 PM on Halloween night, 83. Hi. Oh, it's a hungry little Hansel come to pay me a visit. Is he a famished little boy? Hmm? Does he want a nice big bite? Who are you? Don't you kids read anymore? I'm Dan Dan, the gingerbread man. Usually just your run-of-the-mill midnight snack. But in this case, more like the Last Supper. This is a Asian take on Hansel and Gretel, or infused sort of thing um i i've looked i looked i didn't want to just say asian but i couldn't find if it was a certain like japanese or chinese or thai or something like where it specifically was focused granted 1983 it probably wasn't specifically focused the actors came from different backgrounds so um i just have to say asian uh, over it, but um, it's. I'm stunned that this put got put a well. Disney Channel probably got this as like, what in the world? But it looks very public access like. <laughs> That's a generous way of putting it. I guess. I mean, it maybe. I it's it's really. I could I could never imagine this airing on tell it, let alone pay cable. There's some more stop motion stuff in this, um, a little bit of puppet show things that happen in here. And the witch in here looks like a Burton stop motion animation figure that said, I want to be a real witch. And it got, because <laughs> it's just, it's got like a candy cane nose and stuff. And it, it looks, it literally looks like a, a stop motion puppet thing wished to be a real person and got that wish granted. Uh, but it's it's unique, uh, cheap looking. Uh, I don't want to know what this looks like without Tim Burton, but maybe Tim Burton's reason it looks so cheap. I don't know. But Scott, talk about it. Yeah, it's not his best work. It's I mean, even when you know I was reading back in the you know, 80s and 90s, you know, nobody looked upon this particular piece with any real fondness. Um, I will say that unless I'm thinking of a different short, and I apologize if I am, mm-hmm. is this the one where you spot the Beetlejuice worm? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a there lot a, of Beetlejuice stuff in that. Yeah. Very Beetlejuicey. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, as as 
unexpected and pleasant as it is to have an all Asian cast doing Hansel and Gretel in 1983. That's really the only thing of value it offers. Yeah. I mean, even in terms of, Oh, it's an early Tim Burton film. Uh, it's still not good. Yeah. And there's, you know, watch Vincent, watch uh, the one we're going to talk about next, or even watch uh, the, the, with the doctor doom it's the doctor and doom is that what it was called doctor of doom yeah. doctor of doom yeah but this this is a step backward believe you know i would argue yeah as silly as that might sound this early in his career it is not i'm i'm relieved he still got work after this it's not great and this is probably his first big job and it's a big yeah. f it's like a failure like it's I mean, there's neat props in this. That's about it. And yes, I give him credit for the doing the Asian spin on it. Um, which funny thing, like Tim Burton around the time of Miss Peregrine, he got a big quote going around about an a certain aesthetic he was going for on something, and like somebody asked him why all the lead characters in Peregrine were white. And he said, and this was a pretty tone deaf answer, yeah. something to the effect of, well, I was going for you know, a specific time period and, you know, basically saying that, you know, you know, I should even paraphrase, you should probably should, everybody should just Google this. But basically he was saying that the kind of movie he was making, when it took place, how it took place, that it didn't make sense that there would be non-white children. Yeah. And it was a very tone deaf answer. It was. I felt bad. You know, I felt bad for him. He doesn't care. But I mean, because again, he's a guy that, you know, he tried to give us a black Two-Face. He yeah. tried to give us a fucking black Robin back in yeah. the 1990s. He's always, and right here, he's, he could have just done Hansel yeah. and Gretel, but he, I imagine it was his choice to make it Asian. And yeah. he's always been pretty progressive on his casting for a lot. And I also think he's a guy, he falls into the, maybe a little more of an artist than a filmmaker at times. And I think he's imagining his brushstrokes and as, as a general thing and certain public and people who want to go out with pitchforks, just see one thing and don't realize uh, it's probably, it sounds bad and tone deaf. Yeah. It was, it was a dumb thing to say, I, but I he think clearly he wasn't means, prepared for the question. Yeah. I think he means this. Like we can't ever do that. We always said, Oh, um, context is not key here, but 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 again, the film was a, a decent grocer. Did two fifty worldwide on a mm -hmm. ninety budget, give or take. Um, it's a decent movie, far enough. Uh, it's sort of it's almost a forgotten Burton movie at this point, right? Because and that's down the line for us to discuss. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, like I I just I see here, and I will see throughout that it's not the case. Like it's he he had a bad answer to a question. We all do. Nobody's perfect. I doubt he went home and and made sure his robes were bleached at the end of the night. I, I seriously <laughs> doubt it. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, Hansel and Gretel's an early display of him in his fearless casting, I guess, with certain things. Also an early example of him making a bad movie. And making a bad movie. <laughs> a bad movie that at least has some quirks. You know, like, that's... it. it uh, it's a TV episode, I guess, but yeah. still not... Not good. I don't know what was running on the Disney Channel in '83, but I imagine this is possibly one of the worst things they put on all year. But <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, Tim. Um, yeah, this just doesn't work. Like I can see a world where it does, but it needs a lot more money. Yeah, a lot I mean, it looks like money. a. You know, it looks like a. a people putting on a play in their own house and videotaping it. Yeah, it does, and you know what? He probably took his budget and spent it all on the props and stop motion in the wrong spots for this movie then making it work i yeah so whatever whatever he moves uh, on yeah our crown jewel uh is where he moves on to next uh of this episode is 1984 short frankenweenie in the early 1980s the disney studio was in a transitional phase some people thought they should be sticking to their founder's vision while others believed they should be trying new ideas, as Walt always did. A few of those believers backed a talented young artist named Tim Burton, who had graduated from Cal Arts, the school Walt and his brother Roy founded in Southern California. They allowed him to make two short subjects that were highly personal and way off the beaten path. When they were completed, the new studio regime didn't know what to do with them, and they didn't see the light of day for a while. 
But when Tim Burton built a giant reputation for himself, both films came off the shelf. We're about to see the more ambitious of the two, a half-hour homage to the classic movie Frankenstein called Frankenweenie from 1984. It stars Shelley Duvall, Daniel Stern, and young Barrett Oliver. It is definitely offbeat and easily identifiable as the work of Tim Burton, who was always drawn to the dark world of gothic horror movies. It's also ingenious and entertaining, an early gem that presaged everything Burton has done since. All I need add is a friendly warning. Kids, don't try this at home. Uh, which is written by him, uh, Leonard Rips, and John Ramph, and stars Shelley Duvall, Daniel Stern, Barrett Oliver, he did something other than the never-ending story, Joseph <laughs> Marr, Paul Bartell, Jason Harvey, the older brother from The Wonder Years, and Sofia Coppola. This is a Frankenstein take on having your pet. Uh, the Frankenstein family with little Victor. Uh, the dog gets run over. He brings it back to life. It freaks out the neighborhood. It's your Frankenstein story. Um, I will put... So, Disney fired Tim Burton after this movie, uh, saying he was consistently wasting their resources and making a film that was too spooky to uh, show for children or something. And But the hypocrites that they would be when Tim Burton makes Batman and becomes this big household name, oh, let's put Frankenweenie on VHS and sell that thing. Later on, they go on to have him come back and remake it. But I rented Frankenweenie back in the day with Batman, as we mentioned, both you and I. Big Tim Burton fans. He was our name. He was our guy. I wanted everything he did. And I rented this on VHS, not knowing it was only 27 minutes long. (laughs) That was what I rented for the night, Scott. Ooh. My night was done early. Well, I got watched twice, but I was like, what? That's it? Now, I thought, well, maybe it's a series or something because sometimes um, sometimes I would rent the Transformers on VHS and there'd be a way long gap between episodes on there. So you just, you'd want to peruse, make sure you watched everything. And man, that was it. And I was very disappointed and I, I liked it, but that was it. The big problem with it is that it was intended to play before Pinocchio during one of the many re-releases, Yep, but it surprisingly got slapped with a PG rating. I would have seen Frank and Weenie in the theater because I, as mentioned on the commentary we did on Out Now, one of my earliest theatrical memories is my parents took me to the re-release in 84 of Pinocchio, and I would have seen Frank and Weenie before. Yep. Um... And yeah, this this was the end of his tenure at Disney for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, understandably, I mean, obviously he wasn't a good fit there. I mean, we we can, saw Hansel and Gretel. We just yeah, yeah, we did. We saw that. Yeah. He showed promise with with <laughs> Vincent and flushed it down the toilet. And then the world was not ready for Frankenweenie. That's no. that's simply it. There's nothing wrong with Frankenweenie. It's great. There's simply we the were also still in a place where. Generally speaking, kids' entertainment was more important for what it did not contain. Violence, scariness, vulgarity, sexual content, whatever, than what it did contain. So the fact that Frank and Weenie was a black and white ode to monster movies with a dead dog twice was more important in terms of, oh, my kids will cry in this. That will make me annoyed as a parent taking my kids to the movies than any artistic value. And I don't even mean that as a criticism, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, I've often said that there are certain circumstances when you're dealing with family films where, depending on what the review is, like I would argue that, you know, all the reviews that talked about how good How to Train Your Dragon 2 was, but also emphasized how dramatic and, you know, heartbreaking it was, probably that did that film a slight disservice. Yeah. In the same way that most of the reviews two months later, for a month or so later, for uh, Planes, Fire, and Rescue that said, hey, it's harmless, whatever, your kids will enjoy it, it's bright, it's colorful, whatever, that is almost a more positive review if you're looking at it from the point of view of a consumer parent taking their child to a movie. Right. Uh, the joke I always make is that, you know, one of the reasons 
and I used to say this about DreamWorks, but now it's even more true about Illuminate. You know, we'll, we'll think about you know the, the joke about DreamWorks and Pixar for a while was that DreamWorks would make your kids cry while Pixar would make the parents cry. Um, true. And I know there was some pullback after How to Train a Dragon 2 and Kung Fu Panda 2. They were both huge hits and critically mm-hmm. acclaimed, but they were darker, more dramatic, more melodramatic pictures than perhaps the, the, the stereotypical parent was expecting. And there was a pullback toward more, a more comedy-centric uh, template for parts three of both of those franchises. Right. It's like they, they showed up last time and made this a hit, but next time they might be a little... Yeah. So yeah, I, I get um, that. And but no, I mean it's 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 you know it's fun. You know it was even fun then. You know twenty five years ago to say ah oh, Burton fired Disney and now he's super popular, but I, he wasn't a fit there. He would have been miserable there. Yeah, we we got better because he we we got better because he got let go from Disney, and we got better because he didn't get to continue with Batman. Like we might have, you know. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. I mean, think how much happier Joel Schumacher would have been if he had not only done one Batman movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Frank Weedy, like yeah, this one, it's it's charming. It's back to his suburbia stuff. Uh, and I will say, like, I can see the creepiness because I believe my son was like th- three or four. Like after trick or treat, I have this tradition after trick or treating, we we watch a horror movie. Uh, and one of the first times he did that, I wanted I decided to show him Frankenstein, and he asked to stop early on in the movie. It was black and white. He wasn't using used to watching black and white stuff, so he's kind of off there, and it really disturbed him. Doctor Frankenstein and uh, Igor just or not Igor. It's not Igor in the first movie. The assistant guy um, digging in the graveyard disturbed him. Like there was no monster yet and stuff, but seeing the graves and seeing them dig up. It was disturbing to him, so we switched to Dracula, and he loved Dracula. But that graveyard scene, so it's depending on what you see in it, and kids not being familiar enough with black and white at the time, you know, kids kids are always watching what's new a lot, and it's always in color. So yeah, a black and white thing can turn them off. And then seeing a pet die and then come back like that, okay, sure. And and being eighty four with the in the Reagan era, that's kids are probably not getting fed stuff like that. And yeah, because there were there was. And there's, you know, up until for many years after that, there was a relatively large dividing line between kids entertainment and adult entertainment. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of few, you know, super mega events like, you know, the Batman films of that era um, and, you know, some of the the Katzenberg era Disney cartoons, there wasn't a Mm -hmm. lot of intermingling. Um, So... You know, if a cartoon got a PG back in 1983, that must have meant it was pretty freaking hardcore. Yeah. I mean, they had to work for that PG for the Black Cauldron. Right. <laughs> Not like, you know, in the last, you know, post Shrek, now anything gets a PG. Right. I've been whining about that for years. You know, you, you, somebody sneezes on screen and the cartoon gets a PG. And conversely, in live action, somebody sneezes twice, they get a PG 13. <laughs> um, but that's I get it. You know, I might not agree with the decision, but I understand the thinking at that point in time. Right. And even skipping ahead a little bit, you know, in 1993, Disney was scared shitless that Nightmare Before Christmas was going to piss off parents because mm-hmm. Burton had just been through that with Batman Returns, and they did not. You know, they released it under Touchstone. Yeah, they were covered. That was their way of sort of covering their ass. It got a PG rating that was under Touchstone, and they were very, you know. Hesitant Back when about, PG meant something. Yeah, exactly. Back when PG meant something. Um, and the Nightmare for Christmas was a hit, but it wasn't this giant mega super smash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, generationally speaking, 10, 15, 20 years later, it would become sort of a cornerstone of you know Disney's you know hot topic dem- or a hot topic demographic. Right. It was sort of one of the early examples of people, you know, Disney being sold to people that were too old for Disney. Yes, which is now their business motto. But I right. digress. Yeah, uh, yeah. Why are there children in the theme park? I want to get on the Star Destroyer. I, you know, I will give credit here that he has at Frankenweenie put together a short film that is absolutely timeless in every facet because mm-hmm. he's such got a, such an attention to detail and adoration for the monster movies that the cheapness of it is the selling point. Of like some of the things, so he makes it uh, with production values of the monster movie times, 
And so it holds good. Um, and it's fun to see people in here, like Sofia Coppola, uh, with that wig on. Um, and there's other parts, like, I can see later on. Like, Shelley Duvall feels like she should have been in way more Burton Productions. <laughs> like, she seemed like... He looks like a Burton protagonist. She, she does. Like, and that's neither criticism nor a compliment. Like, it feels like when he, when she got to a certain point, she should have, like, handed off to Helena Bottom Carter to hand off to Eva Green. To, like, you know, like, it feels, <laughs> it feels like a handoff person. Like, I, it's really, it's really funny that they don't uh, go past, uh, next week will be their last collaboration, I believe. Um, but, um, she's quite, she's quite good here. I always, she, I'm always charmed by Shelley Duvall. Um, she all, she has a moment here where, he shows his short film to open this and she I noticed she goes author author <laughs> and I was like oh shit people really did say that um, as we learned on Summer of 82 at 40 uh, Al Pacino had a whole movie based off that phrase and there's things like Joseph Marr in this um, he's the guy with the, the, you know, the mustache the, the neighbor guy feels like had this been made later he would have put Jeffrey Jones in that role like absolute, like it is. Yeah, ripe for Jeffrey Jones to play. Um, He's another guy that. Well, I guess he was in Sleepy Hollow briefly, but yeah. He, other than Beetlejuice, uh, I assume he was. Was he in Ed Wood? I think he was. Uh, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, Chris Crystal. Oh right, right, right. right. Um, Criswell, Criswell, and then wasn't he in? Did he show up in Scissor Hands too? Honestly, I don't remember. I have not watched that one in a really long time, and I was I, kind of waiting to watch it for this podcast because I knew there we go. Coming. Okay, yeah, but Jeffrey Jones frequently he showed up in a lot of people's movies all the time. Yeah, and then they found out well, he was he a liked, character actor. Yeah, character actor like kids porn, I guess, or something. Was that was that what happened to him? I can't. Remember. I believe so. Something bad, but yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about him a couple times through this. So, uh, but. Uh, yeah, there's there's just nice little touches like uh, there's some cool stuff like the laying in the in the background like there's a sweet Wolfman mug at breakfast that I noticed um, and the dog in this sorry I'm all over the place the dog in this is do uh, you remember Spuds McKenzie yes like this style of dog was everywhere in the eight this was like the dog to have in the eighties was this dog because this kind of dog could surf. Ride a skateboard, eat Doritos, drink beer. Like this was the dog, like and and he's got that here. Um, I don't know if this predates the Spud McKenzie uh, Budweiser or was a Bud Light advertisement campaign, but this kind of dog was everywhere. And I don't made see me want to drink a beer. Yeah, there you go. If that dog has one, I will drink it. Um, <laughs> but it's it's really clever with how it ties in and tells the Frankenstein story. Um, the mini golf course that has the windmill on it, uh, jump in the car to bring him back. Like just, and there's also, um, yeah, the, 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 the pitchfork people, but they do the dumb thing of like, let's show them our fucking zombie dog thing. You know, like, <laughs> of course they're going to love this. Uh, but, um, and there's also, there's a woman walking a dog in this. And the one scene with the beehive, like that full Burton character comes like live. Like I just like wow. Oh, no, it's it's. Yes. I've spent. I'll be honest. I've spent so much time viewing this film under the prism of when it was made, how it was made, the reaction to it, and all that jazz. That you know, I I often don't give it the credit it deserves for just being a terrific piece of stop motion animation short filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and it really is very very good. And I feel you know, to the point that yes, if it had played in front of Pinocchio, I his career may have might have gone in a very different path for better or worse. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe there have been outrage, but who knows? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't think so. I think people would get it. Like that's yeah. that's. I think they're discrediting. Um, well, and again, to and, be fair. And, and it'd probably be kids would grow up being like, remember that spooky thing we saw? Yeah, the and they would love it, and we'd yeah, we'd, we'd have like Robert Downey Jr. is Frankenweenie. Oh, fuck, no, Don't give him ideas. Um, the other thing is, but to be fair, the rules at that point, and I think this is still the case, that if it's in you know if it's a G-rated movie, you can't show a PG or PG thirteen or R-rated short in front of it. 
Right. So they were sort of hamstrung by the MPAA at that point. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they could have put it in front of, uh, I don't know what PG movies Disney was putting out back in 84. Yeah. Um, they could have held on to it until they started making R-rated movies. When was Before, that? Outrageous Fortune. Come see Frankenweenie. <laughs> right. Good, that, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, they could have held off a year and put it in front of Return to Oz. That would have been weirdly appropriate. Yeah. That Holy would have been a great, great double feature, right? My God. <laughs> Talk about spooking the kid. Like, this would have no been kidding. tame. This would have been tame. Oh, yeah. This would have been the, the, the yeah. <laughs> Absolutely tame. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I've always done Frank and Weenie. Um, charming uh you know early daniel stern performance too who's not age appropriate to play the father (laughs) uh, which is a funny fact here that um he's a bit young but he works um yeah works quite well so all right so yeah that's our that's our first little this is our like prologue to the big big things here with Tim Burton, it's beginning, he, he gets to make the beginning the beginning of a story What's next week, Brandon? Next week on uh, Tim Burton's Big Retrospective, we'll see his first feature film in <gasps> Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, and then two television efforts, uh, including which includes a reunion with Frank and Weenie's Shelley Duvall, and a nice fucking model for what's to come in his stylistic choices of Beetlejuice. <laughs> so it'll be that. And maybe we'll have some songs to come up with as we talk about it. You guys love the Scott and Brandon musical numbers that happen on these. Uh, I'll have to find a copy of the Beetlejuice Broadway soundtrack and oh. find something to sing. I've actually never seen the show itself. It's the blind spot. I could sing the cartoon shows. I've seen a couple episodes Beetlejuice. of that, yes. Beetlejuice. Yeah, the the the, uh, the episodes that are the only thing that can be a bonus feature on Beetlejuice is never. That's a factoid. But spoiler: actually, Beetlejuice has never had any bonus features for it in any home video. Um, and it's a factoid I put up that um, and we were uh, well, a Creative Zombie. We were looking into doing maybe a docu a horror docu series on a specific movie and trying to sell it as package for stuff and. Uh, I brought Beetlejuice because like there's there's no there's nothing. It's it's bizarre, right? Nobody wants to talk about Beetlejuice. Like nobody. I don't want to talk about that one. So it's kind of weird that there's no <laughs> there's no interviews. That is there's weird. No retrospective documentaries. There's just nothing on Beetlejuice. So, um, but we all want Beetlejuice too, apparently. So speak for yourself. <laughs> I shall. But so join us next week for the second part of this where we talk about those four items. Each week is going to be a package of movies, just like Summer of 82 at 40, and uh, we've grouped them in a specific science way that'll all make sense in the end or not. It's just how we do it. So, Scott, uh, till that, where can people keep up with you? What are you doing this season? you still at Forbes? Yeah, I'm still at Forbes. Um, what... Set what will be going on? When are they going to start dropping? For example, in November. These are going to be in November. Oh, November. Okay, yeah. Fuck. I'll probably have already seen. Spoiler: What kind of forever was terrible? No, I'm kidding. Obviously, (laughs) I haven't seen it. (laughs) Hey, remember when you called something about Top Gun being something like that? I was joking. I wish I could take credit for that. Mm. I know. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I put like seven on my summer movie preview list. I almost won again. I almost won. I I couldn't believe it. I got. I got second by a point. Nope, let me down. I had four spots. That's what helped me. So, yeah. Um, but you have Top Gun in like the top four or something? No, no, no. I spotted uh, Thor. I spotted Minions. I spotted Nope. Uh, I, I there was four. I got four spots, and um, I was one of the people who had Jurassic World and. Doctor Strange. Oh, I spotted Doctor Strange, I think. 
Yeah, because I, 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 yeah. I bet on Strange or Jurassic being number one. I did, but I think was Strange number two. When it we, was, uh, yeah, when we yeah. By the end, it, yeah. By the end, it was number. I mean, if we're talking about domestic or worldwide, I never remember well, what he does there. No, it's domestic. I, oh, yeah, it was. It was Top Gun, Strange, Jurassic, uh, Minions, eventually. Yep. yep. So and I then uh, Thor. Yeah, I spotted those. So Scott, though, um, since it was domestic, I am still the global champion. <laughs> did the last year so i'm i am the global champion for it and number uh, two number two's not bad they told me normally the winner does horrible the next year i didn't know i almost did it i almost did it so i was surprised next, too next year is gonna be interesting because i mean yeah guardians is gonna do great but other than you know it's it's will indiana jones play like kingdom of crystal skull and steroids or not I don't know. You know, will Mission Impossible get a Top Gun bump or not? I think. You know, I, I, I think. I, I don't know. I, I think Mission Impossible. That was this one seven. Yeah, will get a bump. I don't think eight will. Yeah. Although I, you know, theoretically eight could just you know hold the line forever. Seven ends up. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I do think it will benefit greatly from the top, you know, Top Gun buzz or whatever. It's also, a great trailer. It's a great, a yeah, great I, trailer. I saw it last night in front of a uh, smile. Oh, okay. And, and I've, obviously, I've seen it a few times. It's my my hair stands up. My, my hair so, stands you know, it's, up. It's, 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 it's almost as good as what's well, basically my favorite Batman trailer, which is the last trailer of the Dark Knight Rises. Okay. Say what you will about the movie. I have mixed feelings on it, but that last trailer with the rising music is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, cannot wait I mean, for... it's not quite as awesome as the Mission Impossible Fallout down with you know get down with the uh, friction trailer. Yeah, yep, yep. That's all one of the all-time like, greats. All of them from like, yeah, Rogue Nation on. Well, it's just three movies now. Have had great trailers. Well, the Mission Impossible Three had a great trailer. I just don't think it was. Oh yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it just, might have backfired when it made the film look too violent and 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 grimdark. Um, like, yeah. I don't want to. You know, people saying I don't want to watch Tom Cruise's girlfriend get possibly raped and murdered. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, and the first teaser to Mission Impossible 2, which was itself a banger, debuted in front of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, there we go. Back to it. Yeah. Back to it. And we'll close out on that one. I am at The Wrap currently, and I'm at uh, on Twitter at, at scottmendelson.com. I mean, at scottmendelson.com. All right, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brand4KUHD, written work at YSOBlue.com. Come back around here again on Monday for more Tim Burton. But until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetersshow.com. show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.